Today is Monday, January 22nd, which means it's 123 days after Hurricane Maria and the island of Puerto Rico is still a mess. It's a mess for everyone, but my guest today, Fernanda Samudio Suarez, reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education, recently visited Puerto Rico to report on the challenges as they're being felt by their system of higher education, the University of Puerto Rico. Founded in 1903 and with a student population of 60,000 across 11 campuses, the well-being of Puerto Rico is inextricably linked to this very unique university system, and people there are doing more to get a higher education than anybody at a mainland university has had to or would ever endure. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Davin Sweeney, an admissions counselor at the University of Rochester, which is one of these outfits that is welcoming Puerto Rican students who attend for free this semester, but credit is due to Tulane University for jumping on this and getting uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda himself to spread the news via Twitter. As my uh, good friend Satya Dadagupta, who's the VP of Enrollment at Tulane, put it, it was because of the support of other institutions nationally that we were able to keep our doors open. It was an overwhelming sense to give back after the way universities took Tulane students in. Turns out my guest today is also from New Orleans. And at the end of the episode, I'll talk a little bit about why maybe what University of Rochester and Tulane and other institutions are doing might be a little bit problematic when it comes to the recovery of the University of Puerto Rico. So I care a whole lot about Puerto Rico because my wife is Puerto Rican. I've been going there for over 10 years now, and I love my family there a lot. So before we get into this, I think it's really important to give as brief but as thorough a history of Puerto Rico until now as I can give you to those of you who don't really know it, because lots of people are always kind of like, what's the deal with Puerto Rico? It's not a state, but like, what is it? So pay attention here for the next 10 minutes or so before we switch to my interview with Fernando. Okay, so the island that would come to be called Puerto Rico was doing great, populated by native groups we called the Taino for thousands of years, and then uh, Spanish showed up and turned them all into slaves and brought African slaves, and it was a slave colony for about 400 years where the slaves worked to produce sugar, tobacco, and coffee. In fact, we know the name of my wife's relative who was a slave. We've got documentation of that. It's a really crazy thing. So Spain eventually ceded uh, control of PR along with the Philippines and Guam to the U.S. and Teddy Roosevelt in the Spanish-American War. And in the early years of its colonization, the island's domestic leadership attempted to proclaim independence several times, but the U.S. always rejected it. They granted the islander citizenship in 1917, but the Puerto Rican House of Delegates voted unanimously against it for a few reasons, not the least of which because they thought it was a ploy to enlist more people into the U.S. military ahead of World War I, which turned out to be sort of correct because 18,000 islanders ended up serving in that war. So citizenship, when you think about it, was not in fact granted to them, but it was imposed on them. In 1933, 13% of Puerto Rico was owned by sugar companies whose actions exacerbated the growth of poverty on the island. In 1937, the U.S. government in Puerto Rico passed Law 116, which was born out of a common acceptance of the practice of eugenics, the fake science that purported to be able to prove the inferiority of races, which, turns out, some folks in Germany got turned on to, and they thought that sounded like a pretty good idea. I bet you can guess who they turned out to be. So anyways, to quote an article that I'll link to in the show notes, Law 116 was supposed to catalyze economic growth and respond to Depression-era unemployment. Because remember, we're talking about 1933 here. 
Both U.S. government funds and contributions from private individuals supported the initiative. And instead of providing Puerto Rican women with access to alternative forms of safe, legal, and reversible contraception, U.S. policy promoted the use of permanent sterilization. The procedure was so common in Puerto Rico at the time that it was simply referred to as la operación. In 1965, it was estimated that one-third of all Puerto Rican mothers between the ages of 20 and 49 were sterilized in this way. While this practice was underway on the mainland as well, Puerto Ricans were 10 times more likely to be sterilized. Let that sink in. Starting in about 1935, after decades of poor conditions under U.S. rule, Puerto Rican Nationalist Party leader Pedro Albizu Campos organized protests all over the island, including at the University of Puerto Rico, and gained prominence as the most forceful voice for Puerto Rican independence from the United States. Of course, the FBI had been surveilling him for decades, and he was arrested for what would be the final time in 1954 after members of his Nationalist Party opened fire in the U.S. Congress, uh, including uh, an attempt to assassinate Harry Truman outside the Blair House, uh, where he was living while the White House was under construction. Um, Albizu Campos fell into poor health um, during his, incarcer his incarceration. He was tortured in prison. He was made the subject of radiation experiments, and eventually he died in 1965, shortly after he was pardoned by Governor Luis Munoz Marin, for whom the airport is now named. In 1952, the island got this designation of Commonwealth, which is what we, how we refer to it now. It essentially keeps the island in U.S. control, continues the citizenship. Uh, there's no federal income tax, but there are other kinds of taxes. Puerto Ricans annually contribute billions to the U.S. Treasury, uh, but without the ability to vote in U.S. elections, and they have one member in Congress who has no voting power. The island's three political parties, the PPD, the PNP, and the PIP, are organized around the idea of its status. The PPD wants the Commonwealth status to remain, the PNP wants the statehood, and the PIP wants Puerto Rico to become an independent nation. Every now and again, the island holds plebiscites, which is basically a referendum on the matter of PR's independence. The way these votes shake out is really controversial sort of in itself, but in general, the island votes to remain in its current state most consistently. But if they voted, let's say, for something more dramatic, like statehood or independence, the U.S. is under absolutely no obligation to honor those results. So the island stayed really poor under the first 50 years of American control as they uh, fleeced the island's cash crops. And after 1947, the economy improved after American companies invested in its manufacturing infrastructure under a plan the government called Operation Bootstrap, which is which is a pretty paternalistic name for an operation. Anyways, it quickly replaced agriculture as the main economic driver. Corporate tax incentives fueled job growth and stability they were in place for decades, and then they expired in 2006 after a 10-year phase-out by the U.S. Congress. And lots of companies picked up and left. And then, of course, two years later, the Great Recession. Everything that happens in the United States, economically speaking, always happens worse in Puerto Rico. So recessions always hurt really bad. To stem the tide and to attempt to stimulate the local economy, lots of money was borrowed from American hedge funds who saw Puerto Rican debt as a sure thing. And eventually, PR defaulted on its debt of around $80 billion. In addition to the things Puerto Rico doesn't have that other states do, they don't have the kind of bankruptcy protection that acted as a backstop for Detroit in 2013 when they uh, went bankrupt. So then came the hurricane. 
which is actually the second one to hit after Irma, if you'll recall. It wiped out key infrastructure networks, most importantly, the nation's delicate power grid, and the damage assessment has so far totaled at more than is owed in municipal debt to creditors. To add insult to injury, quite literally, the latest Republican tax bill that was passed treats PR like a foreign country, raising taxes on the type of manufacturing that makes up almost 50% of Puerto Rico's GDP. Not exactly an incentive for mainland companies to stay or set up shop, I would say. Puerto Rico's unemployment rate, almost always about double the U.S. average, is currently over 10%, and its poverty rate is 45%, which is more than double America's poorest state of Mississippi. And hands down, the most critical institution that impacts the social mobility of Puerto Ricans is the University of Puerto Rico. As for the University of Puerto Rico, it has long been a symbol of the larger struggle between Puerto Rico and the United States. As I mentioned, it was founded in 1903, and for the majority of its life, it was a militarized campus. Enrollment in the ROTC was compulsory for its students for 41 years between 1919 and 1960. In 1935, the police shot and killed four nationalist protesters and a bystander on campus in what would come to be called the Rio Piedras Massacre. Led by Pedro Albizu Campos, who I mentioned before, the protesters were convinced the university was being turned into an American propaganda factory. Between 1960 and 1970, students continued to protest against any U.S. military presence on campus whatsoever, in the form of the ROTC mainly, especially as the war in Vietnam grew in strength. Puerto Ricans were subject to the draft, and an estimated 48,000 Puerto Ricans served in Vietnam. Unrest culminated in a clash between students and riot police on the Rio Piedras campus on March 4, 1970, with university professors attempting to make peace between students and the riot police, 21-year-old Antonia Martinez Lagares, who was due to graduate that summer, was killed as an officer pulled out his gun and shot her as she shouted at them from her second story, student residence at a safe distance from the action. She was just shouting and they killed her. Most recently, students uh, protested draconian cuts to the uh, university system in the wake of the recession and again prior to the hurricane in 2017, engaging in a general strike that lasted for months. Obviously, this is an insanely abbreviated uh, rundown, but I wanted to demonstrate that PR and the University of Puerto Rico have never been comfortable in its relationship with the United States, and in large part has been locked in a constant struggle with its mainland colonizer. So now you have a little context for my talk to Fernanda as we come to present day, 120 days after the hurricane, and the University of Puerto Rico is still operating under some really crazy conditions. I think she humanizes a tragic story that often gets caught up in high-minded economic debates and low-class tweets by President Paper Towel. Remember that? He was just sort of launching paper towels at people uh, in Puerto Rico. So how are they doing it? What are they feeling at this point? Where does their hope lie? I talked to Fernanda from her office at the Chronicle of Higher Education in Washington, D.C., This is Fernanda. Hey, it's Davin. Hey, how's it going? Good. Can you hear me okay? I can. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Cool. So I read your your piece in The Chronicle, your employer, The Fight to Rebuild a Ravaged University, with great interest because my wife is Puerto Rican. Um, I've gone to Puerto Rico tons of times. You know, it's I've probably been there more recently 
uh, or more more frequently rather than my home state of, of Oregon really over the past probably 10 years. And I mean, it's a little closer to me here in New York. It's a, a, a fascinating place. Had you ever been there before? No, I'd never been to Puerto Rico before. You know, the hurricane happened in the fall and I'm a breaking news reporter here at the Chronicle and we covered it kind of um, in the in a standard way when, you know, the hurricane was fresh and like a week out, you know, we reported on closures and that sort of thing. And then um, and then really there weren't that many follow up stories. And um, then other media outlets began reporting you know, the situation with the power and that there still wasn't enough power down there um, and that people were really in a bad state. And um, near maybe it was November ish, my editor told Andy Thomason, he's the breaking news editor at the Chronicle, um, he asked me to start making a couple calls down at the University of Puerto Rico uh, because there was some interest here at the Chronicle to figure out what exactly was happening and how the university was rebuilding. And it's not just because there was a hurricane, like I mentioned in my story, but really 2017 was a super rough year for the University of Puerto Rico, um, the flagship public university, because there were these two-month-long student strikes um, over proposed budget cuts and the recession that has really ravaged the island for 11 years. So the hurricane didn't exactly come at a great time for the island, and um, there was a lot of interest there because it wasn't just a natural disaster, but it was this, like, big public funding crisis that could happen to any public institution, really. Yeah, the way um, that you put it in your article is that the university was struck by, by two hurricanes. The fis- exactly. The fiscal exactly. crisis and then the actual hurricane. Yeah, so um, I made a couple calls, and, like, as a breaking news reporter, uh, we try to be jacks of all trades. I've covered a bunch of different stories. I've never covered a hurricane story before. So I was, you know, willing to jump on it, and I also speak – fluent Spanish. It's my first language. Um, and that helped me a lot um, when I was down there reporting and later on just trying to familiarize myself with as many sources as I could, that sort of thing. So that's kind of how it happened. And then I went to San Juan for um, three days uh, at the tail end of November. And so some people were just beginning to put up their Christmas decorations. And um, as I was getting off of the plane, um, and in the airport, some people, when they were greeting me or as I was leaving, they'd say felicidades, which like directly translates to like congratulations. But then after, you know, I called one of my aunts and she was she said, oh, they're likely saying that as like a happy holiday. Um, so, you know, it was a little bit also different because the Spanish that I'm used to um, is Mexico um, is based in Mexico. I'm Mexican. I was born in Mexico. So. It was just a whole bunch of different experiences that I got to have and while also trying to get a story out, uh, figure out what I was going to report about being there for three days. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I mean, I, I, I look like a much more out of shape Canelo Alvarez. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. And so it's funny when Spanish comes out of my mouth at all. But when I'm talking to somebody that's not Puerto Rican or even somebody that is or is Dominican, like that's my accent now. Yeah. And so people are just like, what is this that is that is talking to me right now? Um, right. But yeah, it's, it can be, you know, it can it can be a, a steep learning curve, even for native, native Spanish speakers. Yeah, it was just the accent when I got there was immediately struck by it. I hadn't really heard it too much before, except like maybe in some Cuban music, you know, some salsa. <laughs> but, you know, I speak with a really strong Mexican accent. My name, Fernanda Samudio Suarez, is so Mexican. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a learning curve. But, you know. 
Also, from a reporting standpoint, it was probably one of the most useful tricks I had in my bag that I was able to speak Spanish and really make people feel comfortable. I under, you know, I um, was really ingrained in the island when I was there. Yeah. So tell me about the mission of uh, uh, of this piece, or, or you know, what is it that you were really that, that you had set out to 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 cover and and to come away with, and and do you feel like your right. your 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 goals shifted at all by by being there and talking to people and experiencing things? Totally. So originally when I went there, I just wanted to figure out how the university was rebuilding when it was already in not great shape. And um, what I found there is that largely it's a loose network of grassroots volunteers and people from the university community who are doing things to lift the university back up. I also kind of figured out, um, I wanted to really figure out why people were staying on the island because, you know, there's a lot of news reports of universities here in the U.S. who are opening their doors and making applications and transitions for students who want to go to um, leave the island and go to the mainland to finish their semester or their year easier, right? So it was really a story about, like, these are the people who stayed. Why are they staying? What is it that they're doing? And are they accomplishing it? And how much help is the government um the university administration doing with that. And when I was there, I just was really struck by how much loyalty everybody had to the university. And that that sort of loyalty, I only really see here in the States with sports and like university pride about a big football team or the big basketball game. You don't get that for just being a public institution. Um, that foundation of this is the university of the people that is this university is meant to lift people up and help them grow um, up in the in a different socioeconomic state like that is so so present in these students minds and they're 20 year olds who are often living in houses without running water or power and so I was just so so struck that like these are both you know people here in the states they're U.S. citizens too like I'm talking to Often I'll talk to, you know, other student activists for other stories. And, you know, it's a different group of college students. And, like, it's just such different college experiences. So those are some of the things that um, I really wanted to make very clear and explain that um, pride and this loyalty is the university's greatest asset. But also whenever two hurricanes ravage your campus and the island, you know, how, how how far can that actually go? Um, and I tried to figure all that out <laughs> when I was there. Give us a sense of how else the University of Puerto Rico might be different than universities that we think of here on the mainland. Right. So um, a lot of their students are Pell Grant receiving. I think it's yeah, like you said more two than thirds. It said in two thirds are Pell Grant receiving. So that kind of gives you an idea of um, the type of students that are going there, um, where they're starting out. Um, the University of Puerto Rico also is pretty, it has 11 campuses for a relatively small island. Um, well, so the population has, you know, changed a lot that, you know, as you mentioned this, the, uh, you know, a lot of people arguably over the last decade, about 10% of the island's population has left, but mm-hmm. estimates are somewhere between three and three and a half million on the island, which is roughly the, the equivalent of, of the population of my home state of Oregon. Right. So, the university's mission to really help these students 
not just be service industry employees or not just, you know, work like they did, their maybe grandparents did in sugarcane, et cetera, um, in an agrarian society to really become the doctors, lawyers, and teachers that the island needs. That is so, so obvious, partially because it's an island. You know, there's nowhere else to go. There's no neighboring state to go. And when these people do leave, they leave, you know, for a longer time, for, you know, extended periods of time to have their life in the mainland. Um, like I'm sure you know, and it's like the Puerto Rican diaspora that we see, like in New York and all this good stuff. Um, so I think that that's, that's really different. Like leaving is very significant. Um, whereas, you know, here people leave their home states to go to different colleges all the time. Um, leaving is also super significant there because there's a lower socioeconomic status. It's not nearly as accessible to go to the University of Wisconsin if you're a Puerto Rican student you know like it might be for some people but you know given the statistic that nearly two-thirds of these students are Pell Grant receiving like it really isn't a reality for a lot of Puerto Rican families um, so those are some of the big things that I saw of when I was over there and and one of the other things that there's a couple of things I, I know just anecdotally that, that the the university was free for the longest time and is that still the case yeah, um, it's not free. There's tuition. Um, it's relatively low. It's uh, pretty low compared to most um, state schools here um, in, on the mainland. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's like relatively low tuition, mm -hmm. and it's not free um, anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I think, shortly after the, the economic crisis, the first wave, you know, 2007, 2008, that, uh, 8, 8, 9, rather, that, that um, you know, they started to really propose actually, you know, charging tuition. Um, there were protests at that point, too. You know, and it's just interesting that, you know, the, the island for the longest time, I think, has, has really dealt with or, or, you know, regarded the university as a place where, you know, it was really kind of open access, right? That the, the, It's not a selective institution per se. It's not a... Um, you know, an expensive or exclusive institution or anything. It was, just, there was a really um, kind of a, 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 like I said, very accessible. And then one of the other things that's interesting to me about the university is like my wife and, and, and a lot of her friends, they, you know, they didn't live in dorms there. They lived at home or, or, or off campus or something. There was much more of a commuter campus. So there was a much more porous boundary there. It wasn't like you're leaving home to go away right. and do this big thing like happens in the United States um, that in fact, you know, it was a fairly common uh, occurrence to, to live at home and to just, you know, develop your independence, but, but via, you know, your, your, your home base with your folks and then go to class on campus. Right. That's something that I saw there that, um, I thought was really part of the Latin American culture. Um, the idea that going to a four year institution for college doesn't necessarily mean that you will move out. Um, you know, and then that these students are okay with that. And that is the norm over there. Um, that's definitely something I saw, and um, a lot of my family in Mexico do the same thing, you know, they, and they thought it was odd that I was in the dorm <laughs> right, when there, I was in college and the, that sort of thing. There is not in any way the same kind of cultural imperative in Latin America for, you know, uh, parents to basically kick their kids out at age 18. Yeah, no, and then, you know, kids also feel this, these students feel this kind of intense loyalty for their family. And then later on, that intense loyalty translates to the university. You know, everybody on the island or a lot of the people that I spoke with on the island refer to the university as our university. Nuestra universidad, or they'll say la yupi, like giving it this cute nickname um, that 
whenever you look at it, you know, as a reporter, kind of step aside, you only give cute nicknames to things you like, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody speaks of the this university um, with the little I at the end, and because they, you know, they have this pride, this loyalty, um, and this sense of, oh, I don't want to leave it, leave it astray. Um, they have that sense about it, like, all the time, even when they're talking. And I think largely probably that loyalty is really what's pushing this loose network of um, grassroots volunteers that are coming out of the university to really, you know, help other people and lift the university back up even when their homes aren't rebuilt themselves, you know. Tell me about some of these people that uh, you feature in your story and their role in helping get La Yupi back on Mm -hmm. its feet. Yeah, so one of the first um, kind of characters that I anchored the story around, um, her name was Lida Orta, and she is a professor at the Medical Sciences Campus, and she has been at the university um, since 2001, I believe. Um, But it's in my story. (laughs) So um, she actually attended the university for her bachelor's and master's degree and left the university to go get her PhD at the University of Michigan only to want to return every time she was there. She knew that she wanted to get her PhD and leave the island for a while to get, you know, this academic goal. But um, things didn't pan out and she couldn't find the job she wanted on the island. So she like began to form her life in Michigan, somewhere very cold and very far away. It sounds like my um, wife who went to get her PhD at the University of Rochester. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you just then you end up, you know, and you always think she said always in the back of her mind, okay, maybe this year we'll move. Okay, maybe this year we'll move. And every year she would look for um her and her husband are both academics, so they would look for university job postings, like, you know, science jobs on the island. And eventually, um, you know, after hearing this hiring call for many, many years, she was able to move back. That loyalty drove her right back. And then the economic crisis uh, began on the island. So she came back to an island that was really going through a bunch of changes. And through it all, she maintains that, like, this is where she wants to be. This is where she belongs. This is what she was fighting for, even though she had a mortgage, a great job, and her daughters had started school and were born in Michigan. You know, that was the life that they knew. She maintains that, like, this is the place for her. So the hurricane hits, and she sees it as her job because she's loyal to the university, and this is the place that she loves to um, try to help professors and students and other people on the island rebuild um, and try to help as many of these students who want to help people who are into the island. She wants to connect all of them together with other people um, to help them rebuild because this is what Lita has been doing even way before the hurricane hit during the student strikes. She was a really vocal supporter of the students. She's um, always been pretty critical of the administration saying that the university should be open access, tuition should be kept low. And, um, you know, these large sweeping changes that are happening at American universities, for example, more of an emphasis on technical training and job programs at these public institutions. Lita, you know, doesn't think that they have quite the right place at the public institution at Mayupi. So it, it was kind of as though she's been groomed to be fighting this fight her whole life, you know, um, 
from the struggle to leave Michigan and get back to the island, and then the island gets into this economic recession, and and then she becomes this really big crusader for students and faculty. And then the hurricane hits, and then again, you know, she's been doing this the whole time, so why wouldn't she do this? And she wants to do it, even um, this volunteer work and this kind of help that she has always done even stronger and better. It's interesting, you know, that you say that, that she feels like she's been, you know, kind of born to do this. Um, and, you know, it reminds me of a, a piece of, uh, of your story that I found you know, very familiar and also really kind of sad, which is the part where, you know, you sort of talk about the, the degree to which people are just kind of getting used to this new normal of, you know, the island being in a state of disrepair and the university being in a, a state of disrepair. And it's one of the things that, unfortunately, I, you know, I report to people who say, well, how's, how's everybody doing in PR? And I say, well, unfortunately, you know, I mean, they're used to getting the short end of the stick. And totally. this is this is a same soup reheated, as uh, a professor of mine in college used to put it, you know, that they've been through tragedy before. They've been through tragedy exacerbated by neglect by the mainland before. And so I wonder if, if she didn't feel a little bit like, you know, this is this is going to ha- this is coming one day for me, you know, that I'm going to be in a position to have to kind of deal with something like this. Right. Um, I don't know if she ever felt that way, but it seems like all of her, just based on all of the reporting and all of the conversations we had, it seems like for Lita, life had really prepared her to take on this challenge. She's taking it on with strife and a lot of pride. Right. But what you say about the new normal is totally true. I was sitting um, in Vidi's cafe, one of like the student bars with two students, two pairs of, a pair of best friends. And one of the students begins to point out all of the differences, like, you know, there's not a single free outlet on the wall because everybody's charging their phones or their various devices because mm-hmm. um, this place has power. Uh, and little things like, you know, there are more students there in the early afternoon armed with textbooks and eating dinner because it's one of the only places that is serving, like, a hot dinner um, because this place has a generator. And he points all this out, and he's like, well, when you're just trying to survive, this is okay. But the problem is is that people will get used to um, the big traffic delays and, you know, plugging in their phone at whatever free outlet they have and all of these things that aren't normal, right? Well, the traffic traffic has always sucked, and so the fact that it's (laughs) in in Puerto Rico, so the fact that it's, like, worse now and they're getting used to that is just – uh, borderline unconscionable. You know, you also mentioned here the, the Boricua hotspot, which is, uh, I can attest, this is like one of the very first, you know, uh, telephonic communications we got from my father-in-law after the hurricane was because he noticed all these people pulled over to the side of the road just kind of randomly, and it turns mm-hmm. out that that's, that's where they could get cell service. And so these places have, have, have popped up and become, you know, right. these these you know, geographic uh uh, you know, literal hotspots for for people too, which is just um, you know, it's an interesting way that the uh, this this sort of you know shadow infrastructure has 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 cropped up, right? Out of and necessity, and people are lifting themselves back up by doing this, by going to the hotspot and just trying to survive day by day. But by doing that, you know, it it also gives it a sense of normalcy, which a lot of people um, are disturbed by. Uh, one of the professors that I was speaking with. She just she said that she didn't like falling asleep to the sound of the generator. She was really perturbed by it. And she had a generator in her house, but she she saw it as a sign of this is not okay. And that was a question that I asked almost everybody because 
when I got there, the sound of the generator was so obvious and it was blaring. Like it was, and I just wanted to know, how are you living your life? How are you studying? How mm -hmm. are you carrying on? Because this is the constant alarm that is that you can't hit snooze on that just screams things are not okay. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and those are really loud and they run them all the time and not only are they loud but they're stinky and if you happen to be living really close to a neighbor that's running generators all the time and let's say you want to leave yours off and 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 you know try to cool yourself to the extent you can by just leaving your window open as you sleep at night well forget about that um right because you get the exhaust coming in the noise study. and it's just yeah it's god what a it's just non-stop stuff right um, I want to ask about, um, there's a, um, there was an op-ed, I guess it was published in the Chronicle as well by three folks, Jarimar Bonilla from Rutgers, Isar Godreau, uh, and Don Walachek, who are, who are both professors at, at, uh, Najupi and, and the article is called how to help the university of Puerto Rico and how not to. And I recommend that everybody read it as a companion piece to yours, but their recommendations are mainly rooted in asking American schools to create policies that don't discourage permanent relocation away from the island because this is another thing that you touch on the article is that um, you know the temptation to leave is is very strong but I mean the the, the necessity to kind of leave in, in order to keep your you know your life going your quality of life is is, is even stronger but you know that I was struck to hear them talk about some of the more attention-grabbing good works that have been done by American universities like my own and like Tulane, who got a ton of attention, uh, you know, mm -hmm. large part because Lin-Manuel Miranda retweeted their offer to allow students from La Yupi to transfer to Tulane for free for a semester. Um, you know, but of course, they may like it. And they may want to stay, right? And, and as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's hard to come back if you leave, even if you want to. Um, and so here's what they wrote. They said, although well-intentioned, the collective impact of these initiatives could lead to lower enrollment, closed courses, and additional challenges for the majority of students at the UPR who cannot leave, do not want to, or simply never knew about these opportunities as a result of the lack of phone and internet service. So what do you make of this? And did you hear concerns like these when you were there? Oh, I heard a lot of concerns, especially from professors, about students leaving. One of their chief concerns was the island needs these students. If these students are persevering enough to study under candlelight, to come to class in the hot um, sun and learn under tarps, then these are the students that the island wants to keep, you know, for um, these are the people who will eventually 10, 20 years down the line lift Puerto Rico back up, is what professors were saying. Because, you know, you think about it, like, these students are not skipping class to watch Netflix. They're literally, you know, trying to figure out how to get to class by messaging people, as, as many people as they can for a ride and then studying in the dark. You know, these are really, they want to be here. You don't do that stuff if you don't. So professors were really concerned about, you know, if you're taking away these, they saw it as universities kind of poaching or taking away um, these students, then it really puts Puerto Rico in a tough spot because these are the students we need the most, the ones who stayed, who understand the struggle um, that Puerto Ricans are facing. It reminds me of a phrase that a, uh, a therapist of mine used at one point to describe maybe, you know, well-intentioned help that uh, wasn't actually helpful, and she called it the wrong medicine. So maybe some of these places in their effort to help in all their good intention are, are trying to provide the University of Puerto Rico and its students with the wrong medicine. Yeah, I mean, th that's certainly what some professors 
um, at the University of Puerto Rico believe. And it's something that they're fighting with themselves, too, because they also see, I know that a lot of the professors that I spoke with said, you know, but we, we get it. Like, you want to just move on. You want to get your degree. You don't want another delay. These students um, already had a delayed semester and were working on kind of a um, pushed back timeline given the student strikes. It, you know, so if they ha did have the opportunity, sure, it might be ch it might be super challenging to leave the world of the island that maybe some of these students know that's the only one they know to leave their family, which isn't very typical on the island, you know, because it's a commuter campus. Um, but it can be understandable. A lot of professors thought that, hey, this is this could seem like a good deal or, you know, these students just want to get their degree. They just want to better themselves. Um, a lot of these first generation students, you know. You write in your piece, this is higher education at its most improvised. And this is exactly what you're talking about. You know, they're, they're scrambling to make education happen, whether by, by candlelight, by, you know, kind of stealing electricity, wherever they can get it. Um, you know, I found it to be a pretty perfect distillation of the situation. You know, and one more thing that just kind of made my heart sink to realize that no mainland American university would ever be left to function in this way. No. And in fact, you know, this is the most salient point here about the recovery is that, you know, 120 days today after the hurricane, mm -hmm. uh, absolutely no U.S. state would be in the position PR is in right now, which is that 36 percent of the island still doesn't have electricity. Most rural areas still don't have fresh water. Urban areas have inconsistent service when it comes to water. 10% of the population has left over the last decade, you know, ramping up, right? And most of these people who have left are the people, you know, as you mentioned, with means who, um, you know, they, when they leave, they, they sort of compromise the, the heart of any would-be middle-class recovery. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, but then I think for people that might listen to this, I want them to understand no U.S. students or parents would tolerate these circumstances at their university, uh, not to mention faculty, staff, uh, you know, other administration. But, like, can you imagine any American university uh, functioning in this way or being left to function in this way? No. I mean, I was um, in grammar school when Hurricane Katrina hit, and I'm from— You're from New Orleans. Yeah, I'm from 20 minutes outside of New Orleans. I grew up in Slidell, Louisiana. So a storm surge from, I grew up very close to Lake Pontchartrain, um, the lake that New Orleans, you know, borders. And um, a storm surge flooded my house. Um, granted, I was in grammar school at the time, but Tulane, UNL, Loyola University, um, it wasn't even close to what you're seeing here. The sheer devastation that some of the campuses faced, um, for one, was much different but I mean like students were back on make in makeshift buildings on campus doing their thing um, and you know the rest of the city that really provided you know homes for these students or what have you was back and running 120 days after which is Maybe an interesting not in its complete state right but, I mean, it's hey. an interesting distinction that that they make um, in the the op-ed that I, I mentioned before is is that you know she writes actually a key difference that unlike colleges in New Orleans, the University of Puerto Rico reopened to students about a month after Hurricane Maria. Mm -hmm. You know, you said it was it was I mean, and I remember it was many months after, uh, you know, as they as they kind of had to get get things back together again. But the University of right. Puerto Rico was open for business, but people are still leaving. Right. And I mean, when it was back, I mean, they weren't under tarps. You, 
and that goes back to or candlelight. The, the, they had electricity. Yeah, candlelight. They it had was, you know the ability to make phone calls. They had internet. Right. Um, and it goes back to that point of this is higher ed at its most improvised. It is a teacher or a professor with knowledge and students who are willing to absorb it in the best way that they can. That's it. That's kind of all they've got. And that's what's keeping the university running, frankly. All right. Tell me some good news. Um, the good news is that uh, Puerto Ricans who have stayed on the island and those who I've spoken with um, seem really resilient and very hopeful that things will turn around, that they themselves will pick themselves back up. Um, you know, there's been obviously a lot of chatter about whether President Trump will give up more funding for the island um, and help the island recover with more robust spending. Um, but Puerto Ricans are largely just saying, we're going to do this. We have got it under control. We're a resilient people group, and we've got this. And so that, that was really heartwarming to hear that, um, especially when they've really been through it for the past 11 years. Um, that was some really good news. Other really good news is that um, Puerto Rican music and the culture and how just infectious the island is, or at least San Juan is, is still alive and well. Um, there are little subtleties about the island that just kind of make you fall in love with it. Like the fact that everybody uses the nicknames Mommy, Papi, and Baby. Like, mm -hmm. and I don't really notice that anywhere else in Latin America. But there's just this easy breeziness um, and adaptability about Puerto Ricans, at least the ones that I spoke with, this really resilient spirit. And, like, you can tell that that's why salsa music comes you know, does so well on the island is because these people are just really um, willing to be relaxed and go with the flow. And so, you know, when people say, yes, we're going to get back up and we're going to rebuild our island, well, their culture um, aligns with those sentiments and that, that plan that they have for themselves. Um, and, and it's, you know, it was a fascinating place to go to. Um, and it's beautiful, too. It's just very hot. <laughs> Yes, and uh, I am I am a giant ball of sweat every time I go there. Um, yeah. But uh, boy, am I comfortable in pretty much every other way. Um, right. You, know, you couldn't be more right about the you know the openness and the wonderful nature of the folks there, their willingness to to welcome absolutely anybody into their home. Um, you know, the resilience absolutely is there, and it's and it's critical I think for them to to you know be able to to move ahead. Unfortunately, that resilience comes from a really extended history of having to be resilient. They have no choice but yeah. to be resilient. Yeah, I mean, God, uh, nothing but hope here in my house. We're hosting our 13-year-old niece, actually, who was, you know, couldn't really go to school after the hurricane, so she came and enrolled mm -hmm. here. She's going to go back in a couple of weeks. So it's um, quite personal for me, and I thank you for taking the time to, to talk to me about this, but, but mainly for your work, for going there, for writing the article, for keeping this in the news, because, um, you know, it, it's amazing that 120 days later it's still in the position that it's in, and that uh, a lot of people are still, you know, obviously it fades from view because um, we have a maniac in the White House that does maniacal things that, that get a lot more attention, substantive and not. Um, but uh, I thank you for your work, and I, I hope you stick with it. Will you be following up with, with Lita and the rest of the folks in your story? Yeah, I've been in contact with them throughout the course of the story and um, just figuring out what they've been doing, what they've been up to, especially since the story just wrapped up. Um, I don't know when... I'll go back to the island, but I'm definitely following up with all of them 
Um, I'm particularly curious about Yolanda Izquierdo, who will retire in June and will move to either New York or New Jersey with her family. And she was really a good example of the Puerto Rican diaspora, you know, happening right before our eyes in the story. Um, but thank you so much for reading the story and taking the time to chat with me. Um, I love conversations like this. And for what it's worth, the story has been translated into Spanish um, on the Chronicle's website, chronicle.com. And I've also written just a little bit of a reflection on what it was like being in San Juan, especially since, you know, I went through a hurricane being from Slidell, Louisiana. So I encourage all y'all to uh, read up about that. And um, I will send you any other stories that I write about the island and any updates that I have. Un millón de gracias, Fernanda. Muchas gracias. Estamos en contacto y buena suerte. Adiós. Chao. Okay, so for the record, tuition at UPR is $56 per credit or about $1,700 per semester. So it's not essentially free as it was for my wife and generations that preceded her, but it's a pretty damn good deal. And when you're talking about a population with 45% poverty rate, it's very, very, very important to keep that price as low as possible. So my own story here is super personal because as I mentioned, we've been hosting my eighth grade niece here since the hurricane when she came with her mom and little sister and no kidding, they came on a plane uh, that belongs to Mark Cuban because point guard J.J. Barea is Puerto Rican. He asked Mark Cuban to borrow a plane to take supplies to Puerto Rico and pick up people. Cuban agreed, and my sister-in-law knew somebody in the organization, and, well, they went to Dallas on that plane, and then they came to New York. So, seriously, a gigantic thanks to Mark Cuban, J.J. Barea, and the um, Dallas Mavericks organization. I can't tell you how painful it was to know that Donald Trump was going to be the one to lead the relief efforts here and then to see these so-called efforts actually manifest themselves or not, as the case turned out. Per usual, he acted like a child on Twitter when the response was criticized by those on the ground, namely Carmen Yulín Cruz, mayor of San Juan and all-around badass in my book. So in three tweets, here's what he wrote. The mayor of San Juan, who was very complimentary only a few days ago, has now been told by the Democrats that you must be nasty to Trump. Such poor leadership ability by the mayor of San Juan and others in Puerto Rico, who are not able to get their workers to help. They want everything to be done for them when it should be a community effort. 10,000 federal workers now on island doing a fantastic job. Now, I don't know if you know like about racism, but one of the things that white people especially those in power, like to say about black people, remember that whole thing about Puerto Rico and slaves, right, is that the reason their lives aren't better is simply because they're lazy and they just aren't working hard enough to make it better. Now, to be balanced, Obama visited Puerto Rico one time, and it was for less than 24 hours, and it was to go to a fundraiser. He spent more time and energy on his Cuba policy than he did on Puerto Rico. I'd like to assume he have handled this differently shall we say, but um, we are where we are. Okay, so how can American universities help the University of Puerto Rico? For details on this, please read the piece by Godreau, Bonilla, and Wallachek in the Chronicle. I've linked to it in the show notes and in the website, but let me read a few of their recommendations. Provide tuition waivers and free housing to students who actually displaced by the storm. 
not only those currently studying at the University of Puerto Rico. Remember, they were not all necessarily displaced. Mainland institutions should open their doors to students, including returning adult students, who are nearby evacuees or who are still in Puerto Rico but cannot return to the university because of transportation or housing problems. Offer visiting fellowships to graduate students who are working on a thesis or dissertation or to faculty members with reduced course loads. Access to libraries, databases, reliable internet service, and places for study is crucial, and sponsoring them is less disruptive to their home institution. Develop initiatives for students already enrolled in U.S. colleges who are dealing with trauma and anxiety. They may need counseling, psychological services, or financial support that their families are no longer able to provide. Sponsor travel grants that allow undergraduate, graduates, undergraduate and graduate students in Puerto Rico to attend national conferences, symposia, and other events in the mainland. Spread word about the importance of sustaining the University of Puerto Rico and the negative impacts of the drastic budget cuts imposed by the Junta. This is the uh, fiscal control board that is responsible for Puerto Rico's current well-being as they negotiate its financial future. Most importantly, Take the time to communicate with faculty and staff members and students in Puerto Rico about their needs and design strategies in coordination with them. In doing so, mainland universities should be patient and straightforward and prepared to engage the bureaucracy of a large public institution in a United States territory. All right. Finally, folks, please keep Puerto Rico in your thoughts, in your studies, and in your travel plans. They need you and your travel money. And to the extent you can, keep pressure on Congress to provide quality aid to Puerto Rico. And if you know any of the more than quarter million people from Puerto Rico that recently moved to Florida, which, as a Bloomberg article points out, is more than the population of the city of Rochester that has moved there, then your job is to make absolutely certain sure that they register to vote and then they vote and that they vote in a way that supports policies that will bring Puerto Rico back to life. And this song I've been playing in the background is called Hijos de Cañaveral by Residente, half of the completely amazing Puerto Rico rap group called Calle 13, or Calle 13 for you guys who don't speak Spanish. Listen to them if you don't yet. And Residente opened the Latin Grammys in Miami about a month ago with this song. And it's special to me because my wife's cousin, Liliana, who plays violin in the Puerto Rican Symphonic Orchestra, uh, was, uh, was on stage and she backed him up during this performance in Miami. It's especially bittersweet because that's also the day that my wife's grandfather, Salvador Chan or Chamba Solis, passed away at age 93. Um, he used to take me to all the, the cockfights. I love the guy. It's been sort of an intense fall, you guys. More Crush coming in the next few weeks after I interview the founder of the most ubiquitous enrollment management software in American colleges called Slate. His name is Alexander Clark. And I'll be interviewing Bart Gracken, Associate Dean for Progress and Completion at LaGuardia Community College and one of the realest voices in the game on the matter of community colleges and transfer policy. So stay tuned. Thank you guys for sticking around for this one. Really important. I hope you learned some stuff. Spread love.